Have you uh, ever waited for something to happen? I grew up in a rural community, and where we lived, everyone worked, even the children. In the Fraser Valley, people spend the summer picking strawberries and raspberries. And I remember my first summer of picking raspberries. I was, I think, four or five. I had not yet gone to school. I picked the whole summer. And at the end of the picking season, my dad, he lined up the brothers. My two older brothers, they received $20 bills. And then my dad gave me this a $5 bill. And I thought, how did my dad make this calculation? (laughs) 25. How does that happen? At that time, it was a fortune. You could buy a hundred bottles of Orange Crush. A bottle of Orange Crush for five cents. So, I went to the Bank of Commerce in Chilliwack with my dad, opened a bank account, and life has never been the same. (laughs) You know, as children, we picked berries every summer, and we were able to endure the picking season, which seemed like an eternity, sitting between the rows, trying to imagine something good, because there was something really good in front of us a week in August in Osuyas. The whole extended family together, no schedule, bunch of cousins running up and down the beaches, water skiing, mini golf. That was like heaven. What are you waiting for? Maybe you're waiting for graduation day. Maybe you're waiting for your wedding day. Maybe you're waiting for a permanent residence card. What are you waiting for? Let's go a little deeper. What are you longing for? Longing, it speaks to a yearning desire, a burning hunger. What do you long for? Do you even dare to long for it? We often express our longings, our deepest longings in song. You probably remember John Lennon's song, Imagine. I'll start with the second verse. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You who? Now you want me to sing. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. And at some level, we all resonate with those words. A world is one, everyone living in peace. But now listen to the first verse. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Aha. So John Lennon imagined a world where there was no God, there was no eternity, everyone just living for today. And each time I hear that song, I remember that his life ended very tragically on a street in New York under a cloud of darkness and that he never received what he was longing for. 
In our passage today, Zechariah, the priest, he longs for two things. One, a son, and secondly, for the Messiah to come. Those are his deepest longings. He longs for a son because for him, the son represents identity, descendants, inheritance. He longs for Messiah to come because Messiah represents to him deliverance, peace, the promise fulfilled. Every Jew was longing for the Messiah to come, longing for a spiritual reawakening, longing longing for deliverance from Roman oppression, longing to have their own Davidic Jewish king. This longing, it's expressed so beautifully in Mary's song, the Magnificat, that we looked at last week. And it reverberates through the song of Zechariah, the Benedictus blessing that we will look at today. What leads up to Zechariah's song? Well, in the days of Herod, the king, Herod is a puppet of Rome. In those days, Zechariah, he's chosen to serve as priest at the altar of incense. And as the incense rises, people outside the holy place are praying. The angel Gabriel appears and says to Zechariah, Zechariah, your wife, who is called barren, she will have a son, and you will call him John. John will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And then the angel says something shocking to Zechariah. Luke chapter 1, verse 16. This is the angel speaking. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah is just shell-shocked. Why? Well, because the angel is speaking to his two deepest longings, the longing for a son and the longing for Messiah to come. And so could this word of the angel possibly be true? There has not been a recognized prophetic voice in Israel for 400 years. It has been very quiet. Listen to the last words of the Old Testament. These words given by the Lord to the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Doesn't that sound like the angel Gabriel? For 400 years, no prophet of God, no special revelation for God's people. And then the angel says that John, the son of Zechariah, will be a prophet great before the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, turning many children of Israel to the Lord, going before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. So you can imagine Zechariah's thoughts. My son, like Elijah, Elijah, he called the people of Israel out of dead religion. My son will be like him. The angel says he'll be used by God to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. My son will prepare the way for Messiah. Zechariah is unable to believe the message. 
And so he is left deaf and mute until the words spoken by the angel are fulfilled in their time. He leaves the temple making gestures, trying to communicate what he has seen, what he has heard. After his time of temple service ends, he goes home. He goes to the hill country of Judah. And Elizabeth, his wife, who is barren, conceives. Nine months later, family, relatives come to celebrate. Eight days after his birth, Zechariah and Elizabeth go to present their son for circumcision. And it's also the day to name the boy. Well, everyone expects his name to be Zechariah. Most certainly he'll be named after his father. It's not hard to figure out how naming works. For example, my oldest brother, his second name is Abe, named after my father, Abram. My second brother, his second name is John, named after my maternal grandfather and my uncle John. My second name, if you're still interested, (laughs) is Peter, named after my paternal grandfather and my uncle Peter. It's not hard to figure out how naming happens. Elizabeth says, no, he shall be called John. And the people say, you don't have one relative named John. If you're not going to name him Zechariah, then maybe Jacob or Isaac or Henry or Walter. No, would never call him Walter. (laughs) So they turn to Zechariah, who is still deaf and mute. And he asks for a writing tablet, and he writes down, his name shall be John. And immediately his mouth is opened, his tongue is loosed, and he begins to bless God. The time of the word's fulfillment has come. People are amazed by the unfolding of these events, and they ask, what then will this child be? What then will this child be? Zechariah has had more than nine months to meditate on an answer. Nine months as he, in silence, he watched the promise being fulfilled in Elizabeth's womb. He already was a God-fearer before the angel Gabriel appealed, uh, appeared, but now his faith has gone deeper. He has learned to trust God, to trust his word. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies. This Benedictus, this song of Zechariah, it's a moment when time stops and we just receive this divine word of God commenting on what has happened. Chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. In the original language, that's just one long sentence. And it's interesting that 
It's speaking about the future as if it has already happened. Things are as good as accomplished. It's a declaration of faith. And it's interesting as well that Zechariah's hopes are so much like Mary's. His hopes are very Jewish. God is graciously visiting his people in the coming of this Messiah. He has raised up a mighty savior from the line of David. The Messiah, powerful, strong. He will free the nation from all of the powers that bind them. This salvation will be just a massive display of God's mercy. It'll be a tremendous demonstration of God's faithful, gracious love. God is remembering his word and when he remembers, he acts. The prophetic words that spoke with one voice throughout history in the Old Testament, speaking of the coming Messiah now being fulfilled, Hallelujah. And in verse 73, Zechariah, he speaks of the oath that was sworn to Abraham. Listen to the author of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. God swore something to Abraham. The most emphatic statement that he made to Abraham. And when God swears something, you can stake your life on it a thousand times. What did God swear? What was the oath? Genesis 22, 17. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. The oath, interestingly, it focuses on a single descendant who will overcome his enemies and mediate blessing to all peoples, all nations. So Paul writes in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ, the Greek for Messiah. So from the perspective of the whole of Scripture, the oath made to Abraham is being fulfilled in the birth of the Son in Bethlehem. And if we are in Jesus, then Paul writes in Galatians, then we are sons and daughters of Abraham. We are heirs of that promise, that oath that was made to Abraham. The Messiah will free people so that they can serve God in holiness Without fear. And the without fear is emphatic. First point in your outline. Because of God's tender mercy, he acts, he delivers us. He delivers us, his people, from our enemies so that we, his people, might serve him in holiness without fear. He delivers us, his people, from our enemies so that we, his people, might serve him in holiness without fear. Political enemies may constrain us. Spiritual enemies may oppress us. But we serve a God who delivers. We can serve God in holiness without fear in our day. Sometimes we stop because of political constraint. Sometimes we stop because of the messaging of society. Sometimes we stop because of the fear within our own souls. Sometimes we live under spiritual oppression. 
If we are in Jesus, if we are sons and daughters of Abraham, then this Christmas season, we should be singing songs that are like that of Mary, like that of Zechariah. Maybe you should join the Chinese group from Willingdon that sings and dances at Crystal Mall. Maybe you should go to Metrotown and do a mob flash. Just start singing the Hallelujah Chorus and find out who joins you. This past week, a worship team from Willingdon was down at BCIT in the Great Hall, and they were singing Christmas carols, singing worship songs, and as they did that, people entered in. I think one of the great ways to proclaim the name of Jesus in our day is just to enter into worship in the public space and allow people to experience the presence of God and to connect with people that truly believe in something. So may you and I, as we go through the Christmas season, as we talk to people in stores, as we talk to friends, family, colleagues, may we have the words of Jesus of deliverance from our enemies on our lips because Jesus has come. After the song of praise in verses 68 to 75, the song, it shifts a bit. It becomes a a prophetic word about John and Jesus. The prophetic word, it it provides the significance of the events from God's perspective. Let's read those words, verse 76 to 79 of Luke 1. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What's the reason for Zechariah's joy? Well, his son John will be the prophet of the Most High. What is the purpose of John's ministry? He's not the way, but he's the forerunner to the Son of the Most High, the forerunner to the Messiah, to Jesus, to give knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. He proclaims the arrival of salvation in Jesus. And that word salvation, it includes forgiveness of sin, the healing of our souls, deliverance from our enemies. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, being fulfilled. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor And each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's John's message. He's the prophet of the most high speaking forth the word of God, the word of the savior, preaching a baptism of repentant hearts, a turning from sin to God, his ministry prophesied by Isaiah, 700 years before he was born. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. This is what we herald this Christmas season. We say to Vancouver, hey, behold, your God, the one longed for, has come. Prepare your hearts. And whenever people repent, and turn to God, it is revival time. The second point in your outline, because of God's tender mercy, he acts. He sends the prophet who prepares the way so that we, his people, might have knowledge of salvation through forgiveness of our sins. He sends the prophet who prepares the way so that we, his people, might have knowledge of salvation through forgiveness of our sins. This is the good news. 
our sins actually can be dealt with. We do not need to live under the burden, the power of our sin. We do not need to live under the weight of guilt. People often feel that they have either committed the unforgivable sin or they have committed a sin that God just cannot deal with. Their sin is so grave. Maybe it is sexual sin or betrayal or some ritual that they participated in. They think that somehow their sin is unique and God just cannot deal with it. And so it grows within them. The lie of the enemy is that God didn't have your sin in mind when Jesus died on the cross. It's not unusual for people to come to me and say, Pastor, you won't believe what I did. My first thought is, try me. (laughs) Because I don't think anything that you confess will surprise me or surprise God because sin is remarkably uncreative. So do not think that your sin is somehow unique or special. There is nothing unique or special about your sin. The only thing unique about it is that you committed it. But God knows very well all of sin. And Jesus took all of sin upon himself. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just some of it, all of it. It's a lie of the enemy that somehow Jesus' death did not take our sin into account. Forgiveness is a gift to all of us. Your sin will never satisfy your deepest longings. Never. It messages you that it does have your longing in mind, but it will never satisfy your deepest longing. So let it go. It will only keep you from your deepest longing. Turn from it. Why is God so gracious? (laughs) Why is he so tender in his mercy? Verses 77 to 78. There's a shift from John to Jesus. Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. John Harold's prepare your hearts for tender mercy. Mercy appears five times in chapter one. Mercy is God's gracious, faithful love. Tender, it intensifies mercy. Tender, it's an emotive word. It's heartfelt, deep-seated emotion, compassion. So what the text is communicating to us is that God has deep feelings of tender mercy toward us. That's the foundation for all that he's doing. Verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Sunrise, it's an Old Testament metaphor for the coming of the Messiah. Sunrise, the sun of righteousness, the bright morning star. With the coming of the Messiah, there's a bright dawn, the bright dawn of salvation shining on humanity. Listen to Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. Again, the last book of the Old Testament. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Maybe you're far too urban to know what that looks like. For a calf 
to be pinned up and leave the stall. What does that look like? Well, the calf just goes wild with joy. Can't contain itself. Running in all directions. Why does the sun need to rise? Well, if you've ever lived through the month of November in BC, you know why. (laughs) People sit in darkness and they need healing. Outside the reign of the sun of righteousness, people live bound by sin. They live under darkness in an arena ruled by sin, ruled by the the spiritual forces of darkness. They are in the dark and they need light. Sometimes we live in the darkness so long that we're no longer aware of it. We become accustomed to our darkness. Here's a picture of it. When Judy and I moved to Sao Paulo, we moved from a smaller town to a big city. Greater Sao Paulo today is about 22 million people. At that time, I think 18 to 20. So when you move into Sao Paulo, you are immediately aware of noise, air pollution. It's a wonderful city. It's bustling. It's industrial, vibrant but it spends many of its days under a cloud of smog. So there are days when your eyes burn, when you cough. If you cough, there's soot in your Kleenex. But after you've been there for a while, you just get used to it. That's just the way life is. Everybody lives under that cloud. Some people in Sao Paulo... They've been there so long that they don't like to walk on the grass. I remember some of my friends telling me, I don't like the feel of grass on my feet. I thought, what? (laughs) They prefer concrete. I love Sao Paulo. Another example is a Siberian city, Norilsk. Norilsk is about 300 kilometers north of the Arctic Circle. So... It's so far north that in the winter it lives under complete darkness, like the rest of the Arctic. 177,000 people live there. There's no way to get there by road. You either fly in or you come in in the summer by ship through the Arctic Ocean. One private company, Norilsky Nickel, owns the town. It's the largest producer of palladium, We have this precious mineral in our smartphones, so we carry it. Now, the mines in Norilsk, they produce a sulfur dioxide that everyone knows about. It has killed the vegetation around Norilsk. People cough. Their lifespan, if they live there, will be shortened. Everyone knows that. But it is the home of those who live there, so they love it. They're proud of it. So I talk about Sao Paulo and Norilsk not to condemn those places, but they're just pictures of the human condition. We get used to our darkness. We get used to the darkness of our home, of our personal lives, of our university campus, of our workplace, and we no longer see the cloud hanging over us. That's why the light needs to shine. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 23, If the light within you is darkness, how great the darkness. 
Listen to the mission of Jesus, Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We desperately need for the sunrise to visit us from on high. And perhaps you say, Pastor, but you don't know my darkness. You haven't experienced what I experienced. Again, the lie of the enemy, the lie of sin, is that our experience somehow is completely unique and God's light just can't dispel it. Maybe I don't understand your darkness. Maybe I do. One thing is certain, God does. And that's what matters. Listen to the mission given to Jesus. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. God knows very well that we sit in darkness and sit in the shadow of death. That's why Jesus was sent. To guide our feet into the way of peace. People sit in darkness, oppressed spiritually, physically, locked up in ignorance, on the edge of death, relationally stuck, bound up inside. They lack righteousness, do not demonstrate justice. They stand in need of deliverance and forgiveness. God knows that. I was running through a park this week. It was one of those foggy days. Foggy and dark. I'm running through the park. I can hardly see. There's a man on a park bench. He's lighting a joint. And he says, isn't it a beautiful day? (laughs) It's cold, dark. You're in the fog, sitting on a bench. You're lighting a joint. And you're telling me it's a beautiful day? So I ran by and I said, I hope the sun comes out. That's the human condition. We live drugged and we think it's great. In the fog. Can't see. Jesus is the morning star, the light of the world, who saves us from the hand of our enemies, who guides us into the way of peace. He doesn't force us into it. He leads us into it. He invites us into it. He not only shows us our darkness, he shines his light on us. He doesn't just reveal our sin to us. He shows us the way to forgiveness. He goes to the cross, hangs there, and takes our sin upon himself, Jesus himself, our peace, so that we might be guided into the way of peace. Because of God's tender mercy, God acts, the sunrise, Jesus visits us so that we, his people, might be delivered from darkness and be guided into the way of peace. Jesus, the sunrise, visits us so that we might be delivered from our darkness and be guided into the way of peace. Could that be true? This Christmas season, is there forgiveness of sin, really? Is there deliverance from our enemies? Is there peace for our aching souls? I love the song, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. You didn't want heaven without us. Some people, they critique that line, you didn't want heaven without us, and I don't want to enter into the debate. I just want to say 
that Jesus was sent because of God's tender mercy. God's deep-seated, heartfelt compassion for us. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, should not perish but have eternal life. Our God is not some dispassionate, impersonal, eternal clock. He's our personal Savior. He's our peace. It's our sunrise. So we sing, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. You didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. Our sin was great. Your love is greater. What could separate us now? What could separate us now? Tender mercy, it marks the whole plan of God. Our longing for salvation in Jesus. Our longing for forgiveness in Jesus. Our longing for freedom from darkness in Jesus. Our longing for peace in Jesus. He is the one longed for. So what could separate us now? Only one thing. Our decision to reject Jesus. Only one thing could separate us now. Our decision to say no. So maybe you are here sitting under a cloud of darkness and it's a moment for you to just say, Jesus, shine your light on me. I'm confused. I'm distraught. Jesus, shine your light on my soul. Maybe you have never yielded your heart to Jesus and today is the day, the day when you need to say yes to the light of the world. You need to invite Jesus into your heart to forgive you and set you free. So as we sing... Let's respond to whatever the Lord is saying to us. We have no need to sing the song Imagine today. We can sing what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. Let's worship the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.